Hello and welcome to episode 541 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. Today, we have a young man who currently holds the record for the most guest appearances on this very show. Young man who once dominated the online poker streets, quit that at the stone top to put on a suit and sit in a cubicle and file TPS reports from nine to five. Then he started his own options trading firm caption where he is now. It is Jason Strasser, the man who generously, generously explains what's going on in financial markets to total noobs like me. Jason, appreciate the time as always. How's it going, buddy? Happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. For sure. Uh, before we get into it here, Jason is now big time. Likely, <laughs> likely due to his many appearances on this show, he got so big, he now needs to read a disclaimer before he can even talk to us. So Jason... I know you need to read the disclaimer. You Go have ahead. to make the lawyers in your life happy, you know? <laughs> uh, all right. So the information being shared in this podcast does not constitute an offer to sell or solicitation of any offer to buy or sell securities and does not provide any investment advisory services. This information is not meant as a general guide to investing or as a source of any specific investment recommendation. Any projections, outlooks, or estimates discussed during this podcast are forward-looking statements based on specific assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of any actual events that have occurred or may occur. Got it? If Jason says that he happens to own a cartoon of a rock uh, <laughs> NFT or something like that, that is not fi not financial advice. That's that's the bottom line. Got okay. to it. Yep. Got it. Okay. Last time you were on was April of 2022. I think the COVID mania like peaked the S&P 500 around 4,700. When we had spoke, things were starting to crack a little bit last April, S&P 500 was down to 4,200. Things got significantly worse from there. We're talking about as low as like 3,500 in October of 2022. I, I have a thesis on what went on here. I know nothing, but I have a thesis. I can summarize it quickly. When COVID first hit, you know, S&P 500 was at like 3,300. Everything that happened during COVID, the incredible amount of money printing, money getting handed out, everyone at home just blasting. That was a freak thing. Entire market had to reset. And now we took a full round trip. Like we're actually still ahead. I think the S&P 500 is like, I don't know, 3,900 now or something. So it wasn't even a full round trip. We're still up, but people are in like full blown panic. What is your general take on what's happened at the 10,000 foot level since we last talked in April? I mean, I think the, the big outlier move last year wasn't in stocks. It was in bonds, right? Like that was the thing that uh, as far as like what was historic about last year, it just the absolute bludgeoning of the bond market, you know, um, it, and looking back, it looked pretty dumb. Some of the, some of the things like, for example, people own bonds that would pay them one or 2% that they took a 20% drawdown on last year. Like it, it, the bond market was very distorted by just the fed taking rates basically to zero. And then like, yeah, inflation, it just changed everything. Like inflation basically just changed. We talked about it. I mean, we talked about inflation in the past and we kind of like joked about it. That won't ever happen. And it happened, right? We, we got it for real. And a lot of things had to come together for it to happen. So yeah, the stock market, you know, the things, everything last year was all about things following the bond market. When rate, when you had inflation and rates going higher, it crushed tech, all that garbage stuff that was going crazy during COVID flying taxis and, you know, God knows what, you know, all that stuff. Um, you know, it, if, if it makes money, it's going to make money in 10 years. So when rates are zero, that's one thing. When rates go to 5%, that's quite another thing. And so, sure. so we just saw like this massive unwind of all the rate sensitive stuff. And yeah, that, that's really the, the very short version of what happened last year. Uh I'm sure a lot of people saying this don't even really know what a bond is. I, I loosely know what a bond is. I definitely know just from gambling for my entire life that 1% to 2% return at the risk of a 20% loss is never going to be worth it. How, how did that even happen? And maybe you can explain to people what even a bond is. Sure. A bond is when you, uh, you, buy, you buy a bond. It gives you basically, it's supposed to give you a, like, you're usually like a quarterly interest payment. So you buy, you, you, you loan, it's a loan. You loan someone money. At the end, you're supposed to get it back. That's the idea. So you loan someone a dollar. At the end, you get a dollar back. In the, in the interim, you're supposed to get some interest for it. Now, if you look at sort of, you know, we can talk about Silicon Valley Bank, but that's a good example. You know, Silicon Valley Bank in the peak of COVID, when rates were basically zero, they had deposits flood in. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're a bank and you have deposits flooding in, the idea is you loan the money out. But so much deposits flooded in, they didn't have like 
people trying to buy homes or businesses or whatever. They didn't have enough like natural places to loan the money out. So what did they do? They bought a whole bunch of long-term government-backed mortgages, bonds. And a lot of these bonds expired in 10 years, 20 years, whatever, way down the line. And they paid like, call it like one and a half, two percent. So, you, you know, you look at it now and you're like, well, yeah, like that led to a gigantic problem from them down the road. But in, at the time, no one really saw what was coming. And like, it wasn't like they were willing to sit on these deposits and earn 30 basis points or whatever. They, they wanted to take a little bit more risk. Now, it ended up being a horrible decision. But that just gives you a microcosm of what yeah. was happened. People did not really see this coming. <laughs> Obviously, certain people didn't see it coming. And uh, some people like Silicon Valley Bank made these horrific bond investments. Um, but they're not alone. There's a ton of people. Ton, I mean, the, the losses the people took in bonds last year was like one of the worst in the history of, of right. financial markets. Yeah, I, I don't know anything. Just everyone's talking about it. it's such a freak thing, the bond market. And I, I guess I understand to some level now where the rates just made it. Uh, the rising yeah, rates made it impossible for bonds. The inflation was a freak thing. Like we were in a mindset that that would just never happen. Like the idea of seeing like a 7% CPI, like 8%, whatever it got up to, like that, that wasn't on people's radar. Like, well, that, it, shouldn't, it, shouldn't it have been on people's radar given that the government printed this incredible amount of money during COVID? And, you know, they, that's a whole other political conversation I want to get into. But just the fact that they printed so much money, couldn't the inflation thing come down the line be predictable? Sure. There were just certain things that like people thought, I'll give you an example. Like people just thought wage growth would just never really get going. Um, and I think it took more than just money printing. I think it took also a lot of people leaving the workforce. Like the workforce got legit tight. Like ask any small business owner what the last three years has been like, whether you're in our businesses, your, my business, your business, restaurant business, whatever, casino business, it got real, real, real tight. And that's a big part of the equation that I don't think people really thought we would see like that kind of wage growth. And like, that, you know, wages have been going the other way because technology outsourcing, you know, yeah. making stuff in Vietnam, blah, 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 blah. Like we've seen all technology. Those are all very deflationary pressures. So people looked at like all these deflationary things. This AI stuff is going to be very deflationary too. It, it, it could be very bad for jobs, things like that. So I think in general, people thought technology, you never see this kind of pressure on wages and that we, we got that. You're saying that like businesses couldn't get people to work. Yeah. effectively do you have yeah. any idea why because I, I i agree with you like my favorite restaurant in philadelphia before i left was crushing and they closed because they could not get enough waiters and cooks and stuff like that i, I couldn't put my finger on exactly why is there a thesis to, to why well, some of it was just the stimulus stuff people felt like they had money there wasn't a panic to, to go but they the got board. they got like a thousand dollars a couple times and now they don't have to work ever again i, I don't understand i, I really it's, it's actually kind of crazy like look at credit card data right now just right now it is, it is very clear what's happening, which is that during COVID, a certain type of person uh, was living a certain lifestyle and, and working certain hours and things, the stimmies have obviously stopped. The world's a little bit nastier place than it was as far as financially than it was a couple years ago. Now you're seeing people plug the hole in their lifestyle with credit card debt. Yeah. It's surging. Yeah. So yeah, like there are a lot of crazy, it's, it's kind of hard to put yourself in that mindset. You're a successful guy. You're not like living paycheck to paycheck or, but like there, there were a lot of people that, you know, had five or $10,000 from whatever and weren't working. Yeah. They got, they were on payroll. I don't know. I don't want to speculate exactly what was going on, but yeah, for sure. It, it started on the low end for sure. Okay. Uh, it's really hard for me to tell like what's priced in and what isn't. And that's like, to me, the biggest reason why I don't gamble on stocks and yes i call it gambling on stocks i don't gamble on stocks personally because it's really hard for me to tell what's priced in and what isn't and uh, uh, that's like one of a million reasons why i don't do it anyways like you don't need an mba from harvard to know that some companies were massively boosted by covid right like peloton uh, zoom roblox obviously that stuff is going to come down after covid i just people were like shocked i just assumed it was priced in this is some really sophisticated market was all that not pricing? People like, oh my God, Peloton's down 80%. What did you think was going to happen when everybody started leaving their house again and they'd already all purchased a Peloton, right? Am I crazy to think that that stuff should have been priced? Pel I'll give you an example. Peloton didn't see it that way. Like if you go back and look at what Peloton did, they literally in their height of COVID were getting new warehouses, getting more mad. Because remember when you ordered a Peloton in COVID, you couldn't get one. It was like six months wait list or whatever. They were like, never again. So they, <laughs> they, they, didn't, see, they didn't see it like that. Um, I, I do think there were some people that got caught up in some of the sort of numbers like companies like Zoom are putting up. This is a new normal. You know, this is where we're going to be at. Um, 
Yeah. And it sounds really obvious in hindsight, but like even yeah. Peloton themselves, you'd think that the management of that company would be honest and realize, wait a second here. Like, you know, we know this is just a blip on the radar. That's not what they were saying. They were saying like, let's go spend billions of dollars building new capacity, blah, blah, blah. Now they're sitting there with all these uh, tons of Pelotons sitting there. They, by the way, they tried other stuff like the treadmills and things like that. It was a total flop. Yeah, man, it, it's crazy. Companies themselves didn't, what you, what you just said was obvious was not obvious to many companies, including Peloton. Yeah, and that kind of zooms me out to like, you know, in a market that is very, very efficient, maybe it's only efficient over time or maybe it's not efficient in some of these tail events, which we talk about. And speaking of priced in, I, I got to ask you about this Jerome Powell stuff, man. I know this is like a total donkey question, but man, for you guys who don't know, Jerome Powell obviously is the uh, chair of the Federal Reserve. And what I've learned from watching this from way far away is this dude has like unreal power to move markets by just speaking like the tone of his voice. People are like, I got to sell. Look at the tone of, of Jerome Powell's voice. He's hawkish. It's, it's insane to me. And seemingly lately, the last year or whatever, every time this guy speaks and he speaks seemingly all the time, but every time he gets on TV and talks, the market goes down. And, and my, my guess is that people are already pricing in that he's going to come out and raise rates or whatever. And then they double count it when he says he's actually doing it. But you're like in there every day. Are people like trading off this guy? And, and how much power does he actually have to move the market? I mean, what is going on when, every time this guy talks? Yeah, he, he's obviously an extremely powerful guy. He's not the first Fed chair to be powerful. Like there have been other spots, you know, Ben Bernanke back in the day. There are plenty of Fed chairs that have moved markets. I think the thing you have to think about now and the way I would think about it is the Fed is saying one thing about interest rates. So when the Fed talks, they, of course, they, they give this thing called dot plots. They show you where they think interest rates will be in the future. Okay. And the market is saying something much, much, much different than them. So that's this weird thing where like normally there's not a huge gap. The Fed is trying, normally tries to telegraph what they're going to do. Obviously, like the very front of the curves are very similar. Like the fact that you know, this last rate hike cycle was very uncertain because of all the bank stuff. But generally speaking, it's not really a surprise whether they raise 25 basis points, 50. Like they telegraph that very well. There's a report in the Wall Street Journal, by the way, that just always gets it right. I don't imagine. <laughs> so like, so anyway, like they do a very good job telegraphing all that stuff. But now we're in this weird market where the dot plots that those guys are showing and the actual rates are much different. The market thinks rates are coming down in the second half of this year. The Fed is not thinking that. So when you have this like tension between where the market is and where the, and, and where the Fed is staying, little clues, little things he says, little little like things will people will extrapolate them. And he's 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 just acting more stubborn, I would say, than people expected. People expect the Fed to just sort of give in to the market like the market is all powerful being Fed will bow down. And, you know, listen to what the market's saying. The market is saying inflation will calm down. It'll come down from a lot from where we are now, five to whatever, hopefully two, three, whatever. And we're going to have a, a, a not a great economy. We're going to cut rates. That's what the market is saying. That's when you ask what's priced in, that's what's priced in right now. Kind of like things slowing down, rates going down. But there's still this huge gap in what the Fed is saying end of this year looks like versus the market. Yeah. Is it standard for the Fed to be in such disagreement with the market? It sounds like no. Um, it sounds like, I mean, it just sounds like, no, this is like a unique thing where the Fed and the market are opposed. It, it's not like totally unique, but like, and we've been in a world where interest rate movements weren't really that interesting. Like the Fed doing whatever, like they just kind of yeah. were in a holding pattern for many, 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 many years. Obviously we had COVID, some stuff happened, but like for the, for the large part, just, just thinking back the last, since like 2010 or something, we've been in a really, or 2008, I guess we've been in a really boring rate market. And now it's like super interesting. We've got this inflation. We have all these new things happening. So I just think the world we're in now is way different. And, and you know, the, the Fed really, 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 really matters right now. Yeah. Uh, what is the, the exact job of the Fed, right? When you say what, what is the Fed out there supposed to do? Is it supposed to make sure that the economy doesn't completely blow up? Is that like their, their main job? And, and besides the main job clearly of uh, going on TV and talking and making my portfolio go down besides, besides that. Yeah, I mean, there's two. It's I, I should know this. I'm not an economist, but like they they want stable inflation, so that's that's by far one of their goals. They always say they want two percent inflation, something like mm -hmm. that. So that's a huge goal, and then they want stable employment. Like they don't want the economy. They don't want people falling. You know, that's kind of the two prong thing they're trying to they're yeah. trying to hold together. And right now, 
they understand that raising rates is going to probably hurt employment, but inflation was so out of control relative to what they're looking for that they have to get it under control. But that's kind of the two pronged thing they're looking for. And obviously, unfortunately, it's not supposed to be a political um, role, but we've seen over the years that it can be political. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, I want to ask about all this in the context of cycles. Like, it strikes me, and I know there's tons of books on this and graphs and charts and everybody puts out, and everything is just cycle, right? And all this other stuff is noise, and it looks like black swan events, but maybe it isn't, right? Like, every time something happens, everybody's like, oh, it's such a freak thing. It's like, oh, uh, the banks, they had these mortgage-backed securities that were a joke. Oh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Oh, another black swan. Oh, COVID, black swan. Oh, Adam, we just need to get through this inflation crisis, black swan, and then the market's going to pump. Like, am I crazy to think that all these alleged black swans all these alleged tail outcomes aren't really tails it's just like part of a cycle that always seems to be constantly happening and happening and happening over and over again if you follow what i'm saying like it's not black swan events it's just like this is life i i would agree with you i would only maybe the caveat i would i would i think covid felt like a black swan to me especially the way the equity market reacted and some of the things that happened that seemed like an extreme outlier to me as far as uh what was happening in the world um i hope for our sake it is a black swan event um all the other stuff you're talking about i think is definitely more on the cyclical side of things you know we just haven't seen like some of the stuff we're seeing now is we haven't been in in a rate rising environment like this in a very 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 long time like we're talking like our lifetime we haven't seen anything quite like this and we're seeing some new things pop up you know, there, there are some like pain points in the market right now that are popping up and, you know, obviously regional banks, uh, commercial real estate, office real estate, and that's sort of connected to COVID, but also connected to higher interest rates. Um, this credit card data, mm-hmm. that's very concerning to a lot of smart people. And then this idea that like we have a recession coming, everyone's aware of it, but will the inflation also, like if we have an, a, a recession with high inflation, it's going to be very ugly. So like, the way I think about the world right now is there are some real risks looming out there. Almost all of those risks are tied to higher interest rates. And I don't think, you know, there are varying degrees of seriousness as far as the overall world. And we can go into and talk if you're more interested. But big picture, I think we're definitely in a cyclical environment. We're just in one that we haven't really seen in a long time. Yeah. And like the things that popped up recently on the on especially the regional banks, like nothing about what happened was a surprise. Like if you go back on Twitter, you can see guys in November being like, hey, by the way, just in case you guys cared, Silicon Valley Bank is completely busto. Like if, you, if they had to sell their bonds, they're like their mark to market totally busto. So like they're what I would say is like the things we're all talking about now, they aren't like surprises from three weeks ago. Like yeah. they were out there. But now now um, they're, they've been brought into focus. And when you get a bank run on top of all that, then it exposes everything. Uh, I'm curious what you would have done if you were the Fed, because like it didn't seem like they had really had much of an option but to raise rates really aggressively and really quickly. But that's caused other problems. I I don't. Is there a solution? Would you have done anything different if you were in charge? I mean, of- the, mon- the Monday morning quarterback version of this is that they started too late. They started seeing, if you remember, they started seeing inflation. It started popping up, and every people were like, "Wow!" And they, the first thing they said was, "This is transitory. This is not. This is not a big deal." And so they cost themselves. I mean, it, they literally waited like six months from the first inflation to start hiking rates and they got behind the curve. So like if you wanted to criticize them, and I do think that is fair, they were just really slow to react to the first signs of inflation. As far as like what's happened the last like four or five months, I, 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 they're not in control right now. Right. Is there any soft landing you can see here where we like get out of this mess somehow? I mean, in my opinion, just like even like a shallow recession and, you know, interest rates coming back down is like base case. I mean, that's what the market is saying right now. Um, If you look at the stock market right now and you look at things like the VIX or whatever, there's no panic and there's zero panic. Like you can insure a portfolio right now for a completely reasonable cost. There's not like there's no panic in equity markets. Now, the bond market's different. The bond market has a lot of volatility compared to normal, a lot of uncertainty. But if you look at the stock market right now and you and you believe what 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 the market is telling you, the market is saying, yeah, rates are going to come down. We're going to have a shallow recession. Stocks right now, you know, S&P is trading around 17 times earnings, which is totally reasonable price, given that, you know, the 10 years at three and a half percent or whatever. You know, you get a six percent earnings yield in the market, three and a half percent year on the yield on the 10 year. You know, the market is 
the market's pricing in this soft landing. I, and, I, and I think the market's usually right. There, there are some chances that some of these things really blow a hole in the assumptions. And, you know, it has to do with like, if banks stop lending money, you know, if these banks start taking losses, stop lending money, that really hurts businesses. Um, if you start seeing uh, in a recession with inflation, if we start, if we're sitting here in a year and inflation's 5%, you're not going to have one about stocks right now. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think, yeah, the market is, is probably right, but there are some, some scary things that could happen. Yes, but we're gambling. Exactly. Exactly. Gambling. Um, okay. Maybe I buried the lead here on uh, the bank stuff, but I, I want to get into the banking uh, crisis. M- maybe you can explain like exactly what happens when we deposit our money into a bank. Like, I think I know, and I understand that sometimes they invest in bonds. And to me, that's not really gambling. Like, it sounds like they, they did a responsible thing or maybe with this one to 2% bond thing, or maybe they didn't, I, I don't have any idea, but they're not out there like firing, like, you know, FBI, uh, SBF style, you know, like gambling and stuff like that. I don't think, but what happens when I take my money to bank of America and make a deposit, where does my money go? So ideally, if, if Bank of America had its preference, you would be having your money in a checking account there getting zero. That's, that's the gold for them, right? So they want, what they really want is Adam's checking account. You know, the account you pay bills with, the account you don't care you're earning zero with. Excuse me. So they take that money and they loan it to people that are buying a home, buying a business, buying an office building. You know, typically, you know, it's, it's a very defined sort of set of assets that most of these big banks are comfortable loaning against. Now, of course, we see other banks that get involved in crypto lending or get involved in, you know, there's all kinds of crazy stuff banks are allowed to do. But traditional banking is pretty boring. It's, it's a lot of mortgages, a lot of just sort of business loans, things of that nature. If you if you fast forward, um, when banks don't have great lending opportunities, and the flux of cash coming in the door, which is what we saw in crypto land. So, you know, think about like uh, Silvergate, think about uh, SBNY, uh, mm-hmm. all this money poured in from crypto. And th- same thing with Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank, all those like VC venture firms, those were, their, those were business deposits. Those flooded in. So, yeah, if you don't have sort of great places to loan money out organically, it's not like you can just like create a whole bunch of like people showing up one day asking to buy buildings or whatever, or buy homes or whatever, uh, then yes, you start buying these bond portfolios. And there's a lot of rules around them. And I think these rules are going to be, I would bet big money that they're going to tweak these rules based on what just happened. So the rule was, if you buy something that's like guaranteed by the US government, you're fine. You don't have to market to market. Even if it goes against you, you're fine. Because we know at the end of the day, you're going to get paid because it's backed by the full faith and credit of the US government. That was the idea. Of course, when interest rates went up, and they blow a hole through, you know, it doesn't matter that it's the full faith and credit of the U.S. These bond portfolios can still take huge losses. And just to give you some idea, you know, we're talking about half a trillion dollars probably that was lost on bonds that were like this in the banking system. So it's a real number of, of sort of mark-to-market losses in the banking system. Well, then it doesn't matter if you don't get a run, right? If you don't get a panic, you don't get a run. And I think the other thing you got to think about the banks that were in trouble is they were focusing on the business accounts. Business accounts are different. Like, I think it's something like 60% of depositors are under 60% of the money in the banking system is FDA and C insured. Mm -hmm. It's most people with their checking accounts, less than 250 G's, you know, whatever. The problem is when you have business accounts, you know, they need to run payroll. They have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in these accounts. They're much more likely to panic in a bank run scenario and say, shit, uh, I can't have this. I can't take a loss on this, whatever. So that's what, that's, that's the common denominator here with a lot of the banks that are struggling or have gone under is that, a, they blew a hole in their portfolio because they had all these deposit money when rates were zero, and they, they took the risk they were allowed to take, but they blew a hole. B, they had a lot of business accounts, and then they had a bank run, and it all went down. But I, mean, I, I still very firmly believe that like the sheer panic and the banking crisis is, is contained as far as, like are all banks going to go under? I don't think we're looking at that right now um, at all. Uh, so a couple of follow-ups. Uh, when I... I had no idea about this. When I went to the bank and deposited money, I knew they were going to use my money to make more money. I thought it would have to be liquid investments. That just made common sense to me. I give them money. I want to get it back. It better be liquid. It's not a 10-year freaking bond. It better be liquid because I can come ask for my money at any time. Why is that not the rule that whatever investments banks make need to be liquid so they can- Those bonds were liquid. They were liquid. You can, you can, these these are like agency-backed mortgages that were like very, very liquid products. So liquidity wasn't the issue. The issue was just that they took a loss on it. And so- 
if you would ask them like in November, hey guys, by the way, notice you just blew a $20 billion hole through your Silicon Valley bank balance sheet. They would have been like, oh, don't worry. We have all this other money over here. We have all this liquidity over here. We have this money here. No, of course, like $40 billion tried to come out in one day and that was the end of it. Right. But um, yeah, it, 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 is, it is funny. Like it's, I, I think what we're going to see going forward is rules around every bank reporting what their interest rate risk is. Hey, if rates go up 1%, how big of a hole are you going to blow through your balance sheet? There are easy ways of managing it. Silicon Valley Bank could have, with an interest rate hedge, hedged all that risk trivially. Um, it's, it's very easy to risk manage that risk. Uh, yeah. Um, this whole idea around FDIC insurance. So, you know, everybody knows, or everybody, even I knew that 250K was insured. Uh, anything over that, it's gone, it's gone. However, now the government has stepped in and backstopped all the Silicon Valley Bank deposits for infinite amount, whatever you had was backstopped. Don't they have to do that going forward, therefore rendering this 250K thing moot? In other words, if government's just gonna backstop Silicon Valley Bank, why can't they backstop the next bank that goes under and should people still be worried if they are lucky enough to have more than 250K in an account? Yeah, this is the scary part because the messaging from the government has been really crappy on this and it's it's not like clear. Um, it's Listen, here's the bottom line. If those banks were 10% the size they were now, 0%. It would have been bailed out, zero percent. So I, it's one of the, it's that old saying, like you know, if you're gonna like, it's you're better off being uh, having a big, big bank have a problem than being in a little bank with a problem. And that's kind of what people are scared about regional banks now. And like the messaging from the government needs to be more clear about this because it really does to me sound like, hey, if this is a small little bank in Oklahoma down the street and they had this problem. No way. It would have been just normal. The FDSC would have done what they could. People would have got back 80 cents in the dollar and that would have been the end of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't feel great about, I don't feel, no one should feel great about what happened. It doesn't feel right. To me, it doesn't feel right. Right. And, and so the problem to me now is that all these regional banks and local banks, like I feel bad for them, but why would I keep my money there when I know that the government's going to bail out Bank of America? I know the government's going to bail out JP Morgan Chase, they're not going to let those go under, right? So why wouldn't everybody just move all their money to these massive yeah. banks that are too big to fail? I think the good news is most of the regional banks, their customers are mostly insured. Like I said, I think if you just look at the data, Silicon Valley Bank was like 95% uninsured of their deposits, something insane like that. All these massive business accounts. But most regional banks, like where I, where I am, you know, there aren't that many people with more than 250K in these banks. So I, I do think that there's just not this level of panic because most people aren't over that amount. And most these banks look at their deposits and they're like 70% of them are FDIC insured today. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's the one thing that I'm hoping. I mean, we, we need regional. I mean, no one, no one disagrees about this. Like regional banks, are the people that are lending locally, you know, they're, they're so important. I mean, I've, I mean, I got my mortgage from a local bank. Like, I mean, I can't imagine a world without the local banks. I do think though, that there isn't a, there, there's, there's a bunch of businesses right now. In my opinion, what's happening is the business accounts, those are the ones you're seeing money move around right now. You're seeing, okay, I can't have $3 million a checking account with my local small business. I need to be more responsible than that. So that's the money you're seeing moving around. And that's where the, um, I, the other thing that's happened to, I don't know if you, you, you can relate, but like this was kind of a wake up call for people. I, there were people, I had a buddy that had a few hundred thousand in a checking account. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Like open up a, I use flourish.com. My, my friend used to run the company, flourish.com. It's like basically you put money in, they aggregated across different banks. You're under the FDIC limit. You get 4.4% today on that. So like, I do think what happened also in the Silicon Valley Bank is people woke up and they're like, you know what? I got like rates went high. When rates went to 1%, it was like, whatever, you're giving up yeah. a little bit. You know, rates go to 4%. I think it's more of a wake up call. So we've also seen like money pour into money markets the last few weeks, mm-hmm. like insane amounts. And that's really bad for banks because the, the gold for these banks is the 0% money. Right. For sure. Uh, this bailout versus the bailout we saw around the mortgage crisis strikes me as very, very different. I mean, the mortgage guys, like I could see the argument for not bailing them out. They were out there gambling and they lost. Screw them. This, this is different to me because someone took their money to a bank. They weren't gambling. They literally took money to the bank, put it in, and now can't get it out. So it struck me as like way more viable to come to the rescue of Silicon Valley Bank than these other ones. I know this is like political and stuff like that. I don't know why, but anyways, your thought on thoughts on this bailout, quote unquote, versus the mortgage 
bailout situation. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, the FDIC has a fund, right? So every bank that's has deposits that are FDIC insured has uh, has to pay in that pay for this insurance, and so that money adds has added up over time. There's over 100 billion dollars in this FDIC fund. The failures of Silicon Valley Bank are 20 billion, and Signature Bank in New York is 2.5 billion. So as far as bailout. You know, the politicians are running around saying taxpayers didn't pay for this, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's true. The FDIC fund had enough money to cover these losses. 2008 was way different. I mean, the other thing about 2008 is they didn't even wipe out the equity of some of these banks that had problems. So whereas if you think about, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank or SBNY, like the equity basically has been wiped out. Uh, 2008 was a wildly different situation where Mm -hmm. way more people were panicking about the full faith and credit of our banking system. Um, I, it's like comparing like a, like a, like a paper cut to a torn ACL. Like it's like not even like what we just dealt with is just nothing compared to 2008. So yeah, I I agree. The government had to do something in 2008, whether they got all of the things right as far as who uh, didn't get wiped out and who did get wiped out. They definitely didn't. I also agree with you. I think, I think the fact that Silicon Valley bank was just, you know, there's so many businesses that would have just had to lay people off and had huge problems and not be making payroll. Like it's not really like, I totally get why it happened. I wish there was a better solution for the small banks too, because uh, while I agree with you, they needed to do something. They also can't just send the message that if it's your, if, if, if you're a big bank, we'll help you. If you're a small bank, right. we won't. Yeah. Yeah. Messy. Um, we had a question from BS. He said, do you think we were better off when banks weren't allowed to speculate gamble with depositors funds or has this allowed the growth we've had in real estate prices? Um, yeah. I mean, they have to try to make money, right? I mean, banks are in the business of making money. So yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. Banks have to lend. If banks aren't lending, like everything stops. Like we're going back to the stone age. So um, the whole banking system is fragile. Like the way it's designed is, it's just fragile. And that's why, honestly, I'm not a big government guy, but the reason you have a government is to stop bank runs. Like that's one of the main reasons you have a government because you do need to stop that. Like it is a vicious cycle. Like if you go read history books, like there have been plenty of countries that demolished by bank runs. Like, and so we need the government to, to support the banking system when that kind of thing is happening. Uh, as far as like gambling, I mean, I don't really know where to draw the line. Like they need to loan the money out to businesses, to people buying real estate. Uh, I, I think the big factor with real estate prices was low interest rates. Like, you know, whether rates are 0%, 5%, whatever, banks are going to do their thing. They're going to try to make a spread between their deposits and where they're loaning money out. Um, I don't think it's the bank's fault. Real estate prices went way high. I think when you take rate, rates to zero, you're going to get all sorts of weird shit happening. And that, you're going to get GameStop. You're going to get all this crazy stuff. And, and some of the prices you saw in real estate were a function of that. So, you know, if you take an econ class and you ask the professor, hey, how do I price an asset with a 0% interest rate? Like, they would look at you confused. Like, it would break the spreadsheet, right? It doesn't make any sense. So, how do you price things? So, I I think that's what caused all the distortion in pricing. Okay. Moving on. But I guess things somewhat related. I don't want to spend a ton of time on crypto here today. But to me, this whole banking thing, and the more I learned about it and read about it, was like the best example of how Bitcoin as digital gold can work, right? And so, like, while the entire startup and investment world was freaking out about Silicon Valley Bank being bust up with their money. With Bitcoin, there's no third party. If you're doing what you're supposed to do, storing your coins on your own hard wallet instead of an exchange, there's no such thing as this like SBF is scum, your money's gone, or, or Doquan took off with your money, or some bank is belly up. There, there's no third party that's gambling with your money effectively. I thought this was like actually one of the best use cases for Bitcoin and digital gold. We could see, did you think I know crypto got like a little bit of a bump or actually a pretty big bump since this. Any thoughts on how crypto fits in with all this Silicon Valley bank stuff? Yeah, I mean, listen, things like it's not just crypto. Look at gold, too. Right. Like like things, hard assets uh, are attractive when this kind of thing starts happening. I'm kind of mixed on crypto right now. Like the last couple of years, I think Bitcoin, you have to separate from crypto. It's, it's kind of its own thing. Maybe Ethereum, too. It's kind of its own thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, crypto right now is being decimated by the on-ramps and off-ramps. Like, you can own Bitcoin in a hardware wallet and, and store it, but would you let your parents put 10% of their money on a hardware wallet? Like, I don't know about that. Like, my dad would just as likely to click the wrong button and yeah. just do something silly. Like, it's too, it's too, uh, it's just not for everyone. Like, it, and part of the thesis with crypto is like mass adoption. 
we've just gone the wrong way the past couple of years. Some of it's self-inflicted, all this bullshit with the FTX and on and Doquan, whatever, three arrows, like all this crazy nonsense, all this, all this, like the centralized crypto man is, it's yeah. super, even now, like when I'm taking money on and off crypto and I, I, I use Coinbase and I move, I'm, I'm even like, man, there's some shot. I, I send this money to Coinbase. Yeah. Who knows what's happening the next week? Um, I really think what we really need is we need our government and I'm not going to talk bad about anyone directly. I'm regulated by the, you know, by the, by the government. Um, but we need some rules and you know, we need some rules. We need on ramps and off ramps. We need centralized crypto. If people want crypto to really blow up and take off it right now, it just seems like it's, you know, people our age tech savvy, but, 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 but we haven't really made a lot of progress as far as the things that need to happen for Bitcoin to be like this massive, world important thing you know outside of this sort of niche community of, of wealthy people which is where it is now i think yeah okay uh, i gotta ask you about what's actually do with money these days because it seems like there's a lot of uh unsafe places you know i mean cash is just getting absolutely torched by inflation you know stocks uh, no i no idea really how that's going to go um crypto you know is is shaky at best i i think i would agree with you there you can get like 4% and just like some risk, quote unquote, risk free. You can tell me if it's actually risk free or not, but no, it is. quote unquote, risk free, like 4% from, I don't know, like whatever you said, or Wealthfront or, or right. Capital One, or, I mean, these, they're offering 4%. Is that the best place? It strikes me as like hard to turn down if it's actually risk free getting 4% on free cash. You know, the way I would look at it it's probably not the right move for everyone to take all their money out of everything and put it in 4%. Um, you know, I think you got to look at your investment sort of over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. I think you can create a portfolio right now. If you buy like, even like, even one that has a plenty of growth stocks and whatever, you can get create a portfolio, especially if you have maybe 20 to 30 to 40% in bonds. And they don't even have to be like, like you, you can take risk in different places than we took two years ago. Two years ago, we would have never said, hey, man, by the way, high-yield bonds right now yield, yield 7.5%, 8%. Okay? In, Investment-grade bonds are yielding 5 6%, whatever, 5 more like 5 um, You know, those are real options for people. Like, they weren't. When, when, when interest rates were all distorted, they were not only were they dumb investments, but they had, like, unlimited downside. In the world we're in now, if we get a recession and they slash rates and we don't have a big credit event – like you're going to see these bonds perform very well. Like they're going to do more hedging and, and be more productive in your portfolio. So, I mean, right now, like, for example, like it's a, it's a pretty good time. If you're like uh, you're, my parents, for example, entering retirement, you can create a nice income stream um, without taking tons of risk. So yeah, I think, I think people should just, instead of taking, okay, let's take 4% risk free. I think you should put together a portfolio of stocks and bonds. Maybe you get two or 3% of a yield on it, but you know, if the market rips or whatever, like you're not just like left behind in the dust and like, right. wow, wow, I really ruined my retirement when I was 30, whatever, because I took all my money and got 4%. The market could rip, you know, anything could happen. So I think, I think you shouldn't try to time the market. Um, you should just probably, instead of taking 4%, you should take two or three, obviously not risk-free, but a, a yeah. reasonable yield on a, on a decent portfolio. I think that's the move. You know, every finance bro I talk to, like financial people in the finance space, they all say the same thing. Oh, you're young, you know, put your money in S&P 500 and check back in 20 years. There'll be massive compounding interest gains and you'll be rich, right? Oh, S&P 500, Adam, 20 years, check back, you'll be rich, you'll be rich. Am I crazy to be like skeptical on that? Like maybe using historical precedent isn't the best always for predicting future events. In other words, I wouldn't gamble like that. I wouldn't play fantasy like that. I wouldn't bet on sports like that. I wouldn't say, oh, Bengals have won 10 straight games. They're going to win tomorrow. You know what I mean? And so uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm uh, an alarmist or, or whatever. I, I don't – I've yet to be convinced that over the next 20 years we're going to see the same gains in the S&P 500 that we got over the previous 40 when America was like going ham on the technology front and all that. And maybe we're going to win and maybe we're not. I, I don't know. Maybe, I, yeah, go ahead. I think you're valid on saying the returns are going to be lower than what they have been. I mean there's – most people that do this kind of stuff and project – S&P returns over like, you know, pension funds and things like that. You know, they're, they're thinking like mid fives going forward, compounding. You know, I think the S&P is a great option for someone that doesn't want to spend any time thinking about it. No one's pretending like the S&P is the greatest option in the world out there for, you know, for yeah. you. But it's like kind of a reasonable thing to do. And yeah, I mean, I, like I said, 
if your expectations right now are making five and a half percent compounded on the S&P, I think you're totally fair. I mean, that's totally a fair uh, assessment. Okay. All right. Oh, two more small topics here before we get to listener questions. The state of the dollar. A lot of people ask questions about the state of the dollar. I I feel like I need a currency 101 here if you can give it. All all I know right now is that the U.S. dollar is considered the main currency of the world, right? Like people all over the world are denominating things in dollars. I guess what people are saying is that is now in question. Uh, What's going on with the world currency of the U.S. dollar and and how does that affect kind of our lives? This is one of the most ridiculous bullshit things that I see. (laughs) Like I... Listen, we all know that we're printing lots of money here in the U.S. We have a government that's spending over a trillion dollars more than they make pull in on in taxes every year. Uh, we all know that that it's it's not like beautiful here as far as our fiscal situation. And of course, when times get rough, you know, during COVID, we're going to print five trillion, four trillion, whatever the number is, to make it all right. So yes, the U.S. dollar is totally flawed. But let's be real: like, what are we going to replace it with? You have any ideas? Uh, you want a euro? The euro is com- even more flawed. The yen, like, come on, like, the Chinese yuan, of course not. Like, what? So yes, I agree. Like, there are going to be more global transactions that happen in other currencies. You know, people are talking about, oh man, China and Russia are trading, and they're not using dollars. Of course they're not. Yeah. But you know, to me, it's like the dollar is so far ahead of of other currencies as far as like, you know, I. I I don't know. This is a problem. If this is a problem, this is like a, the U.S. is crumbling over the next 200 years and some other government takes over, fine. But like, as far as like what we have to deal with now, do you think Bitcoin, you think the world's going to start doing Bitcoin? Like, it's, it's, I mean, come on, like, let's be real for a second here. Like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not going anywhere. Like, and if it does, it's not, it's not a you and I lifetime situation problem. Got it. Okay. Last thing before listener questions is this whole idea of AI, artificial intelligence, this insane buzzword right now i get so sick of these buzzwords like first it was blockchain then it was web3 like you put that in your company deck and you sound super smart and you raise billions because you have web3 in your deck oh my god it's a it's a web3 fantasy football company let's give them all the money um anyways uh what is do you think are threats is it going to be actually as disruptive as everyone seems to think i know in the stock market everybody all these ai companies are going through the roof i assume there's gonna be some impact just on like your industry as a whole i mean you know uh jason's trading options i'm sure there's some ai that can be used to make you help you replace you i have no idea what do you think the ai impact is in the finance markets right now you know this to me doesn't feel like as fatty as some of the other things that you've mentioned um this is i mean i'm a believer that this is really going to change a bunch of stuff it's going to start though with replacing jobs uh it's it's going to be like i don't know how else you look at this technology and you don't see a call center employee that's looking at this technology being like damn it or you know um even like i mean i'm married to a lawyer so i can make fun of them but like even like some lawyer stuff like how far is this thing from like uh, maybe like writing a divorce agreement or like a, a a routine like acquisition of another company like you know, obviously the technology is not there yet, but you can kind of see where it's going. And so I, 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 you know, I'm not pretending like I'm an expert in this field, but I don't, I don't see how anyone looks at this stuff and doesn't see jobs being replaced at some point down the line. I mean, I just don't see it. I don't see how that's not going to happen with this technology. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah. I mean, what about when it comes to trading, right? Like we've seen technology completely disrupt trading in a big way. Could AI disrupt trading and the financial trading I mean, why not? More. Like, why not? Yeah. Like, by, by the way, there are plenty of like, you know, I don't know what AI, but like, you know, very common, like machine learning algorithms that are making decisions in trading markets, like all the time, you know, we're in my world, there's, a, I'm surrounded by, um, you know, algorithms making decisions better than humans can possibly make decisions. And like all traders are using different algorithms to trade these days, because they can make better decisions. Um, I have no idea where the extreme stops. All I'll say is like where it's really important to think about humans and markets together. How, what are humans good at? What are humans bad at? You know, AI machine learning algorithms, they're good with decisions where there's lots of data involved, you know, a lot of historical data that's relevant. So, um, you know, if you, if you want to guess if Nike is going to trade up a penny or down a penny on the next tick, uh, and uh, an algorithm will have lots of data, lots of information on making a good guess, much better than a human could. 
But if you're talking about like a one-off event, say there's an election in Peru, uh, you know, the best AI in the world or the best machine learning in the world is not really going to be able to make a great decision on that because mm -hmm. past data is not really that relevant to a current election always. Uh, not always, but often. So I, I think there will always be a spot for humans. There will always be a, uh, in trading. There will always be a spot for machines. And it's about finding humans that can understand how the machines are working. Uh, honestly, like obviously on a much smaller scale, but that's what we try to do at ETR is like we try to have the most advanced data and the most advanced models and the most advanced algorithms and systems. And then that's not enough. Like we also need smart people following this stuff 60, 70 hours a week to also work with the data we have. So yeah, I mean, I think that's like every business would benefit from from having some mesh. Yeah, and like I've seen like a lot of, in trading a lot of computer algorithms like make certain types of mistakes over and over again. Like again, it really comes down to when they're one-off things happening. Those things really don't function yeah. very well and humans are much better in those situations. For sure. All right, let's get to the listener questions. Appreciate all the people who sent in questions for Jason. Question one from friend of the show. He says, is there a central banking crisis? What are the odds the Fed can effectively handle inflation and the possible banking crisis at the same time? I know we covered this a little bit already, but any thoughts there? I mean, listen, it's going to come down to, as far as the banking crisis, as far as us caring about it in like six months from now, what it's going to come down to are all these banks loaning out money or not. If, they're, if the regional banks are getting their deposits moved to money markets too quickly, they're getting moved to big banks too quickly, and they're not lending like they should be, we're going to see a real problem. I, I, that's not my like base case scenario, but like that's out there. So as far as like, and also inflation, like I said, like, like, like the, this question is kind of alluding to, there is this chance that we have a recession, a bad economy, and we don't get inflation under control. And then we're going to have a really hard landing. So I think it's TBD. How does anyone know the answer to that question? I have no idea. But um, yeah. there's some scary things out there. If we knew the answer, we wouldn't be sitting here doing a podcast. We would have already right. predicted the future and never worked again. Right yes. Exactly. Uh, okay. I didn't actually didn't I don't even understand this question, but you liked it. So I figured I'd ask it from oh. Greg. He says, seen a lot of Doomer articles recently on, around the rise mm. of zero DTE option volumes. Are the warnings warranted or overblown? First, you got to explain to me what the hell this yeah, question yeah. even means. Zero DTE means zero days to expiry. So basically what the, what I think this started about a year ago, but the, uh, the options powers that be decided to start listing these one day options on things like the S&P 500. So if you think about that, a one day option uh, is optically pretty cheap looking, right? They're not like, they don't look that expensive. Um, they're kind of like, uh, you know, it's not hard to get paid five to one or 10 to one if you get the direction correct on them. Mm -hmm. So this product has exploded in popularity with the uh, degenerate crowd of, of yeah. trading. Like it sounds like, it sounds like showdown, like showdown DFS, yeah. one game, one game DFS. Yes. Yeah. It's perfect. It's showdown. So it, you know, it's got a quick resolution and it's, it's really the degenerate's choice of drug right now in the market. It's shifted from AMC, GME, blah, blah, blah. Like all that stuff has flowed to this product. And this product, I think what's worth pointing out is that people lose their money slower in this product because uh, it's more efficient market, it's tighter markets. The, like, the edge that someone's giving up the VIG on this is really small compared to AMC or GME when they trade options in that. So it's a, it's a, it's a degenerate retail, I say retail, but honestly, like if you're trading this thing, you're probably a degenerate. Like just read articles <laughs> about who's trading these things. Like it's like, it's like just, it's the same people that are doing show, not all showdowns are degenerates, but like <laughs> most probably are. And so long story short, um, people, and, and the question was really asking here is that some people think this is going to create some, some sort of extra volatility in markets. So because there's so many people buying these options that expire in a day, well, when people buy options, the market makers who sell these options need to hedge, right? So the hedging activities of market makers can move things around. And if you look at the size of this, zero data expiry option, like people are thinking, well, this could create volatility. Here's what I'll point out about that. And I don't believe that. And I believe the effects that are overhyped, which is that most of these degenerates, when they buy these options, at the end of the day, they're closing them out. They're not taking delivery of these huge S&P positions. 
you know, just because they spent $5,000 on call options doesn't mean they'll inherit like a $3 million S&P position the next day. <laughs> so when most of these people that are buying these options close them out at the end of the day, it undoes a lot of the effects of this crazy, like hedge, you know, these crazy moves that could happen. The, the moves in options happen when one party is trading an option and one party's hedging and one party's not. Mm -hmm. So when both parties are hedging at the end of the day, which I believe is generally speaking what's happening in these zero date expiry options, you're not going to see these big moves. So if someone's hyping up sort of market risks from these products, I would heavily discount it. I would just think about these as this is just the uh, new drug of choice for um, punters. It's so crazy, man. Like hearing you talk about this is like exactly how like I would describe certain formats of gambling, of poker or of DFS. And like, because Jason has a suit and a, and a company and is in the stock market, like my family actually respects him but since i'm in sports they don't they don't respect they don't respect me at all it's just it's so wild to me anyways next question is from d Mike duck he says how would jason or his company or another company in his space calculate a rough estimate of what the current market price of bitcoin should be and so this has been something from like bitcoin critics which i think is valid how would you evaluate what the price of bitcoin should be given that Really, there's no fundamental value. Same with gold or whatever. There's no fundamental value. I guess you can sell gold for jewelry or whatever, but the value is in how much someone will pay for it. How would you go about pricing what Bitcoin's price should be? Yeah, I mean, the, no one knows how to do this, obviously. I, I use gold. So if you think about gold right now, the rough market cap of all the gold in the world, like someone has tried to think about this, I guess. Uh, the above ground value of all the gold in the world is something like 10 to $15 trillion dollars. Now, if you think about that gold, some of it's in jewelry. Are we supposed to count that? I'm not really sure. So I think if you take like the sort of financial asset part of gold, call it five to ten trillion dollars is the rough value of all the gold in the world. Bitcoin is 500 billion, right? So if you think about it, something like five to ten percent the value of all the gold out there. For all the Bitcoin people out there, I would consider that a very good outcome for Bitcoin. Like five to ten percent gold is, you know, we can talk about how much we love Bitcoin, but Gold is uh, proven the test of time, like mm -hmm. over a long period of time, right? And um, there's, a, there's a much wider uh, community of people that adopt this. You go to India during wedding season, just start there. But just in general, like it is, it is, you know. So yeah, I would think of it as that. If you told me one day, if someone told me one day, oh, I think Bitcoin's going to go to larger than the market cap of gold, I'd be like, you're on crack, you know? Right. It's like, it's a, I, I just think of it relative to it. Even half the value of gold would be an insane outcome for Bitcoin. So uh, right. I think those two assets are connected. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a second here for the last question. Uh, from Duong, he says, any book recommendations? I read the Jim Simons book and Black Edge on Jason's recommendations and enjoyed both. Any fresh reading for the people, Jason? You know, I used to post my favorite books of the year every January, and I have hit a really rough patch as far as finding good books that were new. Um, so I saw that question on Twitter. I, I have three books. They're, they're not brand new what some of them are kind of old but uh they're books that everyone should read uh the first one is a, is more of a storybook not a finance book but it's about it's called the gambler it's the story of kirk kokorian yeah if anyone hasn't read that book it is a fabulous read it is wonderful book that is an amazing man that a lot of people don't know about and that guy has a crazy awesome life story yeah. so the gambler highly recommend and then more finance focused there's a hedge fund book that a lot of people have, have read is older it's called more money than god Highly recommend that book. If you want a new hedge, uh, new, it's an old book, but if you want a hedge fund book, that's really interesting to read, More Money Than God. And last one, one of the old school great books, Liar's Poker, a wonderful, wonderful book uh, written by, uh, oh my God, the Moneyball guy. What's his name? Oh, my God. Not Bill James. Not Bill James. No, God, the, like the most, oh my gosh, I'm embarrassed myself. Someone out there can save me, but yeah, uh, it's going to bother me. But yeah, um, anyway, it's, it's wonderful author, wonderful story. Um, and uh, highly worth reading. So about, you're talking about uh, Michael Lewis. Yes, thank you. Gosh, yes, Michael Lewis. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 his story from his young in his career, and the beginning of that book has one of the most famous scenes um, uh, in all like finance literature. Uh, the very beginning of that book has one of the coolest stories. But anyway, highly recommend that book. So those are the three I have for you today. But none of those books are new. The the gambler's relatively new. I think it's two years old. The other ones are old. Uh. Second last question here is from Andy. He says, do the sharpest traders at Caption use one mouse or two mice or more at their multi-screen workstations? This is an inside joke, Jason. I know you're not uh, okay. uh, familiar with what this guy's referring to. I use, and I think is right, two computers, two separate mice. 
The people at ETR think this is the craziest thing in the history of the world. I think it's very valid. I have a streaming station, which I'm at right now. It's not connected to my laptop. When I leave, I take my laptop and I go. There's no, there's no other uh, issues. I don't have to come back in and set up my streaming station. I can log on one minute before this podcast with Jason, and it's all ready. They think this is the craziest thing in the world until, until the number one DFS player, possibly of all time, Uticao, came on the show and said himself he uses two mice. Wow. And two computers. So you can settle this once and for I've never, anyone to capture these seen, two mice. I've never seen two mice in my life. You know, people <laughs> with multiple computers, they normally have a button. You have a button. You can trans you can you can use the same mouse on more than one computer. Yep. So every setup I've ever seen, no no more than one mouse, but I respect it. Maybe I need to try it. Have you ever do you ever do two, you ever do two like a lefty and a righty or not? That's too that's too uh, I have them next to each other on my right hands, on my right hands only. I just flip quickly between them. All right. Yeah. Anyway. And, I, and, I, and by the way, we've transitioned from bit. We do big monitors. And so I, when I started my career, we had the little monitors stacked mm-hmm. together and we've moved to the big ones. So now I just have these huge jumbo one nice. monitors versus lots of little ones. Yeah. Well, you get, you said you're playing 24 tables on, uh, on party <laughs> poker or whatever you get. Used that was to never small. my thing. 24 <laughs> tables, but yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, all right. Last question we have here is from GB. So I actually, some people told me not to ask this. I don't even know what it is. I don't want to give this guy, I'm assuming he's just looking for publicity, but this guy, Balaji, I don't even, uh, yeah. I don't know anything about him. He says, what are Jason's thoughts on Balaji's $1 million Bitcoin bet? I don't even, I don't want to give this guy like more publicity. I'm sure that's what he's looking for, right? I don't want to get more publicity. My main question for you was, if Bitcoin actually hits a million dollars, which I think we both agree is like insane, isn't the world completely screwed? Like, and then if Bitcoin hits a million dollars, that would mean like so much else has gone wrong in the world for people to value Bitcoin that high that like everything else is screwed. So I don't know. Did you see this bet? Yeah, I don't know anything I about it. Bet. I mean, yeah. isn't wait just so I clarify this? The, basically, this would be like, hey, you know, I could probably get like a thousand to one on the Thunder to win the championship this year, but it'd be like, hey, let's do it for even money. That's basically what this bet is. Right? I so guess much, so. Like, nonsensical bet, right? It's like he could be getting some great odds, and he's doing it for even money. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So I mean, it's not a real bet; it's just a publicity stunt. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go into it in too much. I mean, the guy's just. Uh, I mean, he's one of these guys that um, is just like deep into the Bitcoin religion. Right. Who I just can't stand to follow on Twitter. I do follow him. I. Oh, admittedly man. i started following him after this bet so he won in that <laughs> yeah way. he beat but you exactly but like i it's just more evangelical than it is right. real and of course i'm sure this guy has lots and lots of bitcoin and he's just he's thinking this is like free advertisement for him exactly if you have a lot of bitcoin and it goes up you know two or three percent or whatever and you and you had something to do with that it's a lot of money for you well anyway. and he's you know weimar republic he thinks we're going to like uh, hyperinflation in the next 90 days it's a pretty like bold call like right. if anything it's going the other way in the next 90 days. So, yeah. All right. Anyways, this was awesome. I, as always, learned a ton. I don't know if you want to be found, Jason, but if you want to be found, tell the people where they can find yeah, you. Yeah, Twitter. Uh, Strassa2, S-T-R-A-S-S-A-2 on Twitter. Um, do you ever miss being in the poker streets? I know I asked you before the show if you're going to go to Vegas for the World Series at all. It would feel like it was such a big part of your life. I know it was a long yeah. time ago. Do you ever get the like itch to go play for a week or something again? I I love poker. I it doesn't really fit well. I have a 16 month old kid now too that I'm you know spending a lot of time with. So it's like it's hard to like fit into my life right now. Yeah. But the way I digest poker now is I'll watch like a I'll watch like a training video for a half an hour, or I'll watch like a, a I can't watch poker streams. I don't know who watches them. They're just yeah. they're too slow for me. <laughs> but like I'll watch like a highlight, or if someone sends me some hands, I'll watch you know the hands from a stream. So I, I digest poker like the way I can in my life as far as like going to the casino and spending like four hours to play 120 hands of poker. Like I just don't care about that anymore. Yeah. Like I'll do it with my friends for fun or whatever. There's a Omaha game here that if I get invited to, I'll go, I'll definitely go play it. It's with fun people. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, like just live poker, I love live poker, but it, it's just, it's like, it's a lot of time and well, you don't get very many hands. Yeah. The bottom line is it's a young man's game, you know, and uh, as it we, is. as we get older, uh, I've decided that about a lot of things. And so just is what yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, you know, there are these tournaments that pop up that are for amateurs only and they happen. Like the last big one is in Cyprus. Like I'm not going to go to fucking Cyprus to play, but like, but like, I like that, that idea. Like but where they, they have, how do they know who's, how do they know who's an amateur? I would not consider you an amateur. I mean, they let me play in the one drop in Monte Carlo. It was a million euros, and I, you know, promptly lost 
uh, that tournament. <laughs> but, um, but like, yeah, they had a tournament there where it was like amateurs only. And uh, I just was like, okay, I'll play. And they let me play. Hmm. Uh, I was heavily backed for those wondering. I didn't, I didn't chunk a million <laughs> of my own money in there. Um, but um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a fun time uh, hanging out with Harala Bob. Uh, they thought, you know, whatever. It was fun. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I, so like tournaments like that, if I qualify for them, which I should, by the way, you're, if you're a poker pro and I'm a threat to you, you're an embarrassment. <laughs> Let's be real. I mean, I'm, you're, you're just, you're not, you're not good. He, he hasn't been running the Sims. Exactly. All right. <laughs> Appreciate Jason's time as always. I know people want Jason on more and more and more. We can't do it. We can't do it too much because, you know, it's, uh, 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 it has a bigger impact when it's annual or biannual and stuff like that. We have more stuff to talk about. So we'll have Jason on again when it's warranted for Jason for producer Luke. I am Adam. Good luck, everybody. Mm -hmm.